You can take your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 15 this morning. A happy Mother's Day to all those mothers, including my mother who I haven't seen this morning. So but I'll make sure I call. I have apparently a number of friends that I know they know that I'm a pastor. But I have apparently multiple text threads where people are saying happy Mother's Day and things. And I'm like, I'm not a mother. Why am I on this text thread? So I'm just getting blown up this morning. Revelation 15, as we continue our study of Revelation, looking at how these verses introduce the final judgment of God on sinful man. It seems like it's been a number of weeks. I know we got a little bit of a break, but a number of weeks looking at the judgment of God on the earth because really, as you want to summarize or look at the book of Revelation, it is Christ not coming to redeem, but Christ coming in Judgment, And so you've seen that over and over again because that is the very theme of this book. But it's also good to remind ourselves even as we begin kind of the last push as it were, these seven bowls of judgments that are going to be poured out very graphically over the next few chapters. And really this is just introduction in chapter 15 that it's a good reminder to know and to remember it's not the way that the book ends. And so Christ will come. He will return. He will take back what is here. All that has been introduced from the beginning that he's taken the scroll, the deed of the earth back. He will come back and it will end not dark and gloomy, but bright. And it will close with a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness will be. Only righteous, the righteous will dwell for all eternity. But we have to endure all of these judgments because God is not only love, he's not only a redeemer, he is the judge and he is just. And so we must endure the judgment on sinful mankind to get through, to reach this new heavens and new earth. God has given us this book. It is called a blessing. It is a blessing to know these words because not only does it serve as a reminder that we are to be warning others of the judgment that is to come, those who are rebelling against God, but also a comfort that you might live in light of the return of Christ, that you would live confidently. And so this chapter is a scene in heaven that will introduce these seven bowl judgments. Let's pray as we begin. Father, just thank you for the time that you have given, even as we turn our eyes to your word and desire now to grow in our understanding to think through and ask the questions of why did you give this vision to the Apostle John? And why was it left not only for these seven churches that are addressed early on in Revelation, but also for us today and for generations to come? What is is the church? What are we to learn about these future events that even impact the way we live today? So help us with that as we desire to grow on our understanding, even as we see your glory displayed, both here, not just in judgment, as we'll see those who sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So encourage us in those ways as we await your return. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I was shocked to see a couple months ago that it has been 20 years since the beginning of the Iraq war. So it was two months ago in March that it was 20 years, 2003, when that first campaign 
of the Iraq war began. And so for me, those are very formative years. I vividly remember 9-11, and I can vividly remember kind of at that point, probably in my life, I had not watched a lot of news. And it really was the Iraq war was a different war because you did have a lot more technology. And so you had 24-7 coverage. You had all these networks that were just showing coverage day in and day out. I did reporters on the ground and, and all these things. And it was, it was kind of a unique experience watching it. And I can remember watching the beginning of kind of the bombs being dropped. And they were kind of, that was known as the, the shock and awe campaign. Just big explosions and powerful. And that term, um, as I was looking it up and I saw some articles last couple months on it, uh, it, it, the other word for it is this idea of the doctrine of rapid dominance. I kind of like that better. Shakana is probably a better trademarkable thing. But it's the idea of rapid dominance, that they would go in and they would exert force and try to say, we're going to show so much power that you'll simply lay down. I watched it on a screen and it looked pretty impressive. But you can imagine just not being one watching, but if you were actually there in the kind of concussion that would happen from explosions, exploding, and all those things. And it's just been interesting. In the last couple of years, I've gotten to know um, an individual who was actually the commander of that initial bomber flight. And I've asked him about that. And it real. I mean, he didn't know if he was coming home to his family. But as you think back to that idea of the shock and awe, the, the rapid dominance, I can't help but think of Revelation and the same idea of which the Lord is going to come and just overwhelm. And yet over the course of this, really, this last three and a half year period, we've seen 1,260 days. It's repeated over and over again. He is going to overwhelm a sinful and a wicked world as he pours out the wrath of God. Here in chapter 15, we're going to be introduced to an overview of the end. And then in 16 and 17, you're going to, 18, you're going to kind of see it played out. The seven seals that we saw early on in Revelation are introduced by a scene in heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, if you remember back to there, when we see uh, transported from not uh, chapter 3, the end of the seven churches, to chapter 4 to heaven. And then chapter 6, you see the seven seals. And likewise, the seven trumpets. Before they're introduced in chapter 8, chapter 7 is a scene from heaven of the 144,000 being sealed and the multitude of God praising God. And so it's no surprise here as we come before the seven bowls laid out in chapter 16 that we likewise have another scene from heaven in chapter 15. So let me go ahead and just read it for us. It's, it's shorter. It's the shortest chapter in the whole book of Revelation. And this is what John saw. Verse 1. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. For all the nations will come. And worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after these things I looked, 
And the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who have seen, who have the seven plagues, came out of the sanctuary clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and the seven angels were finished. That introduces this to where you get to 16 verse 1. The loud voice is going to say what? He's going to say, go pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. But our time will be focused on this introduction. And you, anytime you see an introduction, you kind of go, is it just here to kind of tell us what's coming? What way is it introducing the events in the coming pages or the coming chapters of whatever written work? But I find it so interesting here that although judgment clearly is the topic, in fact, the judgment he's going to say is the final, the last. That idea in verse 1 that God is finished. And then verse 8, the very last word is the seven angels were finished. It's the idea that we're coming to the end. This is it. We've noted that number 7, the idea of perfection. This is perfect judgment being met out. Seven seals and the seven trumpets and now the seven bowls. But there's not going to be seven more of anything. This is going to be it. It is going to be finished. And within that framework, the scene in heaven isn't one of sadness. Rather, it is one of rejoicing. And we're going to see the joy in heaven in these expressions, not necessarily a personal experience. Look at how God has saved me, but yet it's the cry of heaven. Look at what God has done. Look at his power, his might, his glory. Great and marvelous are your works. So we're going to see these expressions of God's glory. Namely, the first one we're going to look at too, but is this expression of his redemption from the redeemed. These tribulation saints here who sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. You can look at the very first verse here. It kind of introduces what is to come, not only in this chapter, but forward. That he saw another sign in heaven. It's another sign because firstly in chapter 12 we saw a pregnant woman with the crown upon her head and we symbolism for Israel. And then in, you see the symbolism of the second sign of the great red dragon. And so this is another sign that he sees from heaven. And he notes it is great and it is marvelous. Same language of verse 3, the song they sing. He's saying this is something that is great, something that is marvelous, not something that everyone will respond to with fear and trepidation, but they will see it as liberation and God coming to redeem. And they'll praise him for who he is and what he's done. And that finally everyone will see the Lord for who he is. It's a great and marvelous thing. These seven angels who've seen, who have these seven plagues, which there's a bit of an implication here that you could even call the other things plagues, because this seems to be the same thing of kind. That is to say, it's Maybe a relationship here to Moses, the song, the, the ten plagues of Israel. But it is something that is horrific that is coming. Not necessarily quantifying it as simply pestilence and disease, but this is something that is coming as a judgment. A judgment upon the earth. It literally means a blow or a wound. They're bringing blows, they're bringing wounds, they're bringing Plagues. The world will be plagued with these final, these last seven of which are described that they are the wrath of God poured out and 
revealed. But it's all going to come back to the nature of God's glory. And this is an important concept. And I want to look at it for a moment to think of this and ask the question, if you had me sit you down and say, could you describe to me glory? What would you say? If you go back to simply a, a simple definition in the Hebrew word kavod, it's idea of importance or weight. That is, it's something that is honorable, respectable, majesty. So we're talking about the glory of God, that we're to give God glory, that God is to get glory. It is to simply magnify who he is. It's not a material beauty that he, he's, a, he's kind of aesthetic, but it's something that emanates from his character, all that he is. His glory, his weight, his essence. First Peter 1.24, Peter talks about the glory of man. And the glory of man, because we reflect the character of God, there is some glory, there's some weight, some substance of man, maybe compared to an animal. But it's a fading glory. It's a fading dignity. It's a fading honor. Contrast to the glory of God, which is manifested together with all of who he is, that it never passes away, that it is eternal. And here, his redemption, as we'll see the song bears out, it magnifies his attributes of who he is, his mercy, his grace, his love. We see that third sign here. He looks up, verse 2. What does he see? He sees heaven, something like a sea of glass, which is the same terminology we see early on in chapter 4, this idea of crystal or um, it's like, it's, it's, it's comparison. Mixed here, though, with fire, with judgment. That's the distinct difference from the visions that come earlier. Here, the throne is consumed with the wrath of God being poured out. So much so, as we'll see in 8. No one is able to enter the sanctuary. All business as it is is closed except for all wrath being poured out over these seven bull judgments. Sea is not an actual ocean, but an idea of this crystal transparent platform before the throne of God that shimmers. It's interesting if you look at Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, his son, 70 elders of Israel saw... God, and they described a pavement under his feet as clear as the sky. And we looked at some of this before in chapter 4, but that Ezekiel describes as an expanse under God that was like an awesome gleam of, of crystal. There's some continuity here of the visions of the throne of God. And on that glassy sea, as it were, we're going to see there are people. It's mixed with fire, but he says those who have overcome the beast and his image and the number of his names. You remember back to those, the whole world at this point has gone after the beast. They, they worship him. They're bowing down to the Antichrist, the false prophets. There are those who have overcome the beast, those who didn't take that number representing him and worship of him. And they stand on the sea of glass and they have harps of God, harps like the 24 elders in the vision in chapter 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. They are able to sing the song that all of God's people throughout all of history have sang, a song of redemption. It's this reference back to Moses and who he is, or who God is in the midst of how he delivered them from Pharaoh and from Egypt. 
the same theme of Christ that he redeems his people from sin, even the way in which you see the foreshadowing as Moses delivers his people from slavery and God delivers us from our slavery of sin. And so they can sing together. If you were to go look at Exodus 15, you'd see this same song kind of song. It's not word for word. It's distinct here, but yet the same concepts are true that great and marvelous they sing are the works of God. O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways. They recognize he is the king of the nations. They ask the question, if he is who he says he is, he is the king of the nations, the ruler, the creator, who would not fear? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? And that, of course, is again that idea of giving glory is giving God the credit that he is due the worship that he is due, the obedience that he is due, reflecting rightly who he has made us to be. Who would not glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. That is, today in the world that we live in, you see that people worship a lot of different things. Those things are not worthy, but yet people worship them. This is the affirmation as the end and it is finished that there is one who is worthy. There is only one He alone is holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. As I said, this is a bit of an introduction. It's almost as if we get a broad overview from kind of this is what's going to happen, this is how it's going to end, and then it's going to take time for these different bowls to be poured out and be consumed. But they're all looking forward to the end where Christ will return then all the nations will come and worship before you. They will see his righteous acts and they will not be able to deny it. They sing this song. It's true of Israel and the deliverance from Pharaoh. And it's true here of those who sing the song of the Lamb. Themes of God's faithfulness, his deliverance, his redemption, his judgment on his enemies. song is sung by the redeemed, the tribulation saints, to exalt God's character and all that has happened and all that will happen. If you go back just a chapter, chapter 14, if you remember, who else sang a song? The 144,000, the beginning of chapter 14, it says, verse 3, that they, those who were sealed from Israel, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But notice this song, it says that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Well, the song that's sung in anticipation here by the martyr saints, anticipation of judgment and the anticipation of Christ's final return and reign, the millennial reign that's coming. The anticipation of the prayers of the saints and the martyrs being answered the anticipation of God's vengeance being justly poured out. That song's not as exclusive. The 144,000 were unique and they have a unique way in which they reflect the character, the nature, and, and God's redemption. But this song, this song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is not exclusive in that same way. So that you and I can learn this song and sing these words because we experience even now salvation through Christ and Christ alone. 
and can sing this song. We see the singing in heaven over and over again of worship because they cannot keep silent for the glory of the Lord. And so they sing. They sing of his redemption. They express the glory of God and what he has done in his saving. But also, he gets glory one way or the other. Because his glory can be expressed not only in worship, not only in redemption, but it can be expressed in his wrath or his vengeance. If you look at verses 5 through 8, the rest of the chapter, because this is where it turns and it's not simply redemption and glory. It is judgment and glory. The wrath of God, as many theologians have said and put, is not an attribute of God. Not in the way that God is love. He's not wrathful by nature, but you see his wrath poured out. Why? Because he is love and he is just and he must deal with things. And so in this case, he is going to be justfully wrathful and it's going to be poured out on those who have rebelled over and over again. We've seen that this isn't just as if all of a sudden he's going to pour out his wrath for no reason or immediately with no patience, yet he's been patient and he's been kind over and over. Even in Revelation, even in this last seven-year period, there's been opportunities for them to repent and to return. But they do not turn. They continue worshiping the Antichrist, not the true Christ. And so judgment will be met out. It will come to a final halt and finish. And the picture here, though, is kind of transformed because it's after these things. So you have one vision where you're looking up towards heaven, but then another vision where he looks. And we saw this as well. If you remember back to chapter 7, you, you see some of these similar ideas of the, the sanctuary or the tabernacle. He's going to look up in the sanctuary of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And so John's attention turns from the singing saints to the tabernacle in heaven. What does all this mean? And you kind of think back and if you've ever been to Israel or you've ever seen kind of some of your Bibles might have the pictures and graphs and why do I need to know this? Why do I need to know what a, a tabernacle looks like? Well, it just helps you with a visual of what's going on even here towards the end because this is the imagery of the inner tabernacle, the sanctuary of the Lord, the Holy of Holies, a place where biblically the, the Ark of the Covenant would go representing God's presence. The mercy seat were kept. There the curtain would be drawn inside to indicate for us that God here is the source of these judgments that are about to take place. You might look and see, well, it seems like angels are metting it out. It's going to be seven angels bringing seven plagues. Yes, but they come from God. It is his wrath being poured out. He's using them as messengers. As even Hebrews says, they will deal out his wrath. has always been God's purpose to judge sinners and destroy sin and to remake it as the world, the new heavens and the new earth, just like he did in the flood. He will do again, not by water, but Peter says by fire. And the imagery here then moves to, well, who, well how is this going to happen? Well, the ones who carry it out are going to be seven angels with the seven plagues who come out of this sanctuary. So they come out from the Lord with his mission, his instructions, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. The idea of coming out of the temple, they have the priestly garb. 
the sash around their waist and their shoulder, metting out God's judgment. And one of the four living creatures, so if you go back to chapter 4, we looked at, we saw the four living creatures that surrounded the throne and the way they are described. And one of them is going to come and he's going to give to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The only business of heaven here will be judgment. Then it scores the holiness and the solemnness of the duty even described in what they are wearing and how they are seen. This reality of God's wrath is not new here, but seen throughout the scriptures. I borrowed this from John Piper, but uh, in an article he writes about the wrath of God. He writes of these five realities, which I want to briefly touch on, because you might look and see the the wrath of God being poured out, which is the description of where we're going to be for weeks. So I think it'd be good just to think biblically about the wrath of God. What is it? Number one, the, the wrath of God is terrible and eternal. If you look at Romans chapter 2, verse 7, it says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The issue is God made men. Ecclesiastes says he put eternity in their heart. We're meant to be eternal. We are made eternal. The question is, where are you going to spend that eternity? It says those who repent, those who turn to Christ, those who cry out for forgiveness, receive it because of what Christ has done. Those who reject it, it says there is wrath and there is fury. Is contrasted with eternal life here, wrath, fury with immortality. Confirming this, you look at Second Thessalonians chapter one. It says that Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse nine. He'll be revealed from heaven. How? In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. Jesus, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So his judgment is eternal. It is terrible. But also there's reality. I know we've been looking at Romans for a long time in Sunday school with with Matt there. And so if you can remember way back to Romans chapter 1, that this is that the wrath of God is being revealed. It is a present reality. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so you think about God's judgment today, we're under it. It's being poured out everywhere. And yet you also understand Revelation 15, that we only see in part what we truly, the world truly deserves. But one day it is coming. And so it's not only a reality in some ways, but it is still coming in its full effect. As I said, if you look at verse 8, that comprehensive nature here of which it 
No one's going to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues and seven angels are finished. That is, when this starts, this is the full attention of what God is doing, and it will be met out over these seven bulls. Thirdly, the wrath of God is also coming in final judgment. So it's coming in what? Coming in here, Revelation 15, final judgment. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So again, as we approach Revelation, you start to feel, wow, there's a lot of judgment, a lot of wrath in those things. But hopefully as you're reading your scriptures, and maybe many of you are working through uh, either book by book or uh, at a yearly reading plan, you're going to keep running into this term of the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the wrath of God. Why? Maybe you ask the same questions of the martyrs of how long, O Lord? Revelation 15 gives you the answer. This is how long until Revelation 15 when the final full pouring out of the wrath of God will be poured out on the world. The wrath of God. And he marks in verse 7, who is that? Well, of course, it's God by his nature who lives forever and ever. That is a judgment you want no part of. So the wrath of God is eternal. It's eternal. It's something that is present. It's something that is future and final judgment. Fourthly, the wrath of God is owing to our sin, which exchanges the glory of God for the glory of man. This idea of glory is of weight. You are giving something honor, giving glory by the actions, by the way you spend your time, by the, the way you talk, by what you do. And Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. They exchange the glory in Romans 1.23 for what? The glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. That is, they, instead of worshiping the creator, they worship the creature, the creations. It is to say, when the judgment comes, we're not able to say it's not fair. No. We exchanged, humanity exchanged as a whole, the glory of God for the glory of man. It's completely just. And fifthly, the wrath of God therefore is righteous. Romans 3, 5 says, What shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? In other words, it's not unrighteous. Those are rhetorical questions. You're saying, no, it's, it's not an unrighteous thing. And so now as you come to the passing of this judgment, you're going to see it poured out on the, the whole world. And God's glory and God's power is going to fill the temple in heaven, it says. Described in a similar way as we look at two other places where it'll be his only business till it is finished. This idea of it being filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And that's that idea of shock and awe. The idea of thunder and lightning and power. And I'm already seeing uh, those who went to the big fireworks show last night. It's that idea of smoke and power and awe of something that is just, you stand back in our amazed, but also afraid of. Exodus 40, 
talking in a similar way of the sanctuary, described it this way. Moses had finished building the tabernacle and its furnishings. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. And again, this idea of the glory, the weight, the substance the, of all of who God is, the, the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had dwelt on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. He's not even able to go in because of the awe. And even later when Solomon has completed his temple here and he's placed the Holy Holies inside First Kings eight ten says, It had happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. The tabernacle, the glory of the Lord, here met out in his perfectly just and righteous wrath, will be something that no one can stand before. We're going to walk this all the way through, but no, this is where it is headed. That either there is the choice between, are you going to bow the knee and sing the song? That is the song of the Lamb. Turn to Christ, that he would take your penalty of sin, which is just and right. That you might have life in him, or are you going to be, whether it's the Lord tarries or this happens sooner than later... But either way, we're going to face God's wrath unless someone has faced it for us, which we understand it is Christ who has faced God's wrath for us, that it was poured out on Christ for our sake. He could bear it, which is why in Revelation 4, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. No one else can bear it. We'll speed utterly horrifying and terrible time on the earth, just as we saw last week, the, the reaping of the earth's harvest. And so praise God that you live in a time where this is only seen in part. Do we see sin and do we see suffering and do we see tragedy? Absolutely. But we don't see it unfiltered as they will see it here. You live in a time where there's opportunities to not only be a messenger for Christ in the way that the church is meant to be, to share the gospel with others, but also in a way that we can live for him and live with him, live for him and glorifying him. As you look ahead, there are a, thing, a few things to consider and understand about these judgments as we begin to turn the page to the first bowl in chapter 16. And the first thing I want you to understand is that the whole earth at this point, just to give it a frame of reference, has gone mad. They've, they've gone crazy towards the beast. They followed him wholeheartedly. They have worshipped him. You go back here uh, to chapter 13. It is absolutely comprehensive. The, the whole world outside of a few have bowed down the knee because they, for their own skin, want to eat or sell or trade or whatever it might be. And secondly, even as... They're preparing this invasion of God's people. Because remember back to well, what does Satan, the red dragon, want more than anything? He, he wants after Israel. And is he can't get there because the Lord's protection. But yet he's building up an army to attack them, as we'll see. 
So they're preparing. And when Christ returns, the seven bowls will become these seven visitations from God in wrath on men. And then Christ returns. And then lastly, to understand that these bold judgments, as terrible and as horrific as they are, because if you study this and you read different things, there's a question over in which way maybe they're not literal. I don't think there's any other reasonable interpretation to say these are literal. You even look back to the passages of Ezekiel, 1 Kings. It's been literal before. That is when the presence consumes, the presence of God, the glory of God consumes. No one can stand. Smoke fills the sanctuary of God. No one is able to enter. The judgment will go forth and it will be finished. Yes, it puts it here and it's complete and full sense towards the future where it culminates in the return of Christ, the destruction of the Antichrist and those who are going to follow him. But it's also the reminder, as we've seen over and over again in Revelation, that we are called to bow the knee, to worship the Lamb. We have an opportunity that those here will see in in a horrific way. But we can recognize it now and give our lives to Christ and the way we live and the way we serve. Not only here within the church, but outside of the church in the lives that we lead. Let's pray. Father, even as we have briefly looked at the coming judgments that we will see, the bowls that are being poured out, these Saucers of which they'll be flipped over, containing all that is stored up for millennia of sinfulness of humanity. May it cause us to reflect on who you are. May it be a time this morning to think of your character and look at the most practical application for our lives is to have a greater view of who you are, a higher view of your holiness, a higher view of your justice, a higher view of your, in turn, compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because we deserved all of these things. But for what Christ has done on our behalf, that he bore this wrath for us. And so may we sing even now with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness, but also being reminded of the power of that message and the responsibility that for the church to continue until you come for the church, that it is a task that is still yet unfinished. So may we even sing now of that very thing. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.